Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of Chicago. Father David Anderson studied under Father Alexander Schmemann at St. Vladimir's Seminary and was ordained in 1983. In addition to serving as a parish priest for 37 years, he has been both a teacher and translator of patristic and Byzantine liturgical texts. He has presented many classes on liturgy and the church fathers throughout the country. He is presently the Byzantine Rite Chaplain at Wyoming Catholic College. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father David Anderson. Thank you very much, Peter. And as we always do, let's begin with prayer and the prayer that, that I will chant for us this evening, since in the Byzantine tradition, we celebrate the transfiguration of the Lord for eight days, uh, will be the troparian of the transfiguration. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You were transfigured on the mountain, O Christ God, revealing your glory to your disciples as far as they could bear it. Let your everlasting light shine upon us sinners through the prayers of the Theotokos, O giver of light, glory to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. It's uh, always my joy and privilege to be back with you at the Institute of Catholic Culture. I want to thank Anna, especially this evening, for her introduction, uh, speaking of St. Lawrence. And I'll add a couple cents of my own, uh, which is that St. Lawrence, though a quintessentially Roman saint, is also very much venerated in the Byzantine East. His feast is kept on the same day. Today we celebrated it. There is an entire proper service for him in the liturgical book that's called the Menaean uh, for this day with many, many beautiful hymns written by the fathers. He is given the titles of archdeacon and great martyr. And frequently in iconography, uh, if you go into a church with a Byzantine-style icon screen or iconostasis, sometimes on the side doors of the iconostasis, which are generally referred to as the deacon's doors, 
one of the saints whose icon is there will be St. Lawrence, sometimes St. Lawrence and the great hymnographer, also a deacon from Constantinople, Romanos the Melodist are pictured as the two, the two, the pair of deacons on the deacon's doors. More often, we see the archangels, Michael and Gabriel, but, but actually to have the deacons is an ancient tradition as well. So indeed, may St. Lawrence pray to, for us. And perhaps I might make a, a little transition now from St. Lawrence to the uh, topic of this evening and next evening. Uh, the, uh, I don't know to make a series, but I, I guess a short series uh, that we're calling Lord Teach Us to Pray and how the Psalms are at the foundation of that prayer. In the um, liturgical service for St. Lawrence, there is a verse that is taken from the 16th Psalm that is used traditionally. And that verse is, you have tried me by fire and found no iniquity in me. So there we have an example of how the church from her beginning, when desiring to express her prayer, does it as we're going to hear in just a few seconds in the words of St. John Chrysostom, first, last, and middle with the words of David, with the Psalms of David. So for this evening, uh, I intend to touch on three points uh, and develop each one. If I don't finish it all this evening, we'll carry it over into next week. Uh, the first point will be that the Psalms are the foundation of Christian prayer. Second will be that it is not only good, but necessary for us who are the new Israel, the people of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, to pray the Psalms as Jesus prayed them and the apostles used them in the New Testament writings. So we must not, all, not only externally pray them, but we must internally digest them. We must live in the world of the Psalter, because the world of the Psalter is Jesus' world. He said it explicitly. I'll say more about these words of his later, but when appearing to the apostles after his resurrection, as recorded in the Gospel of St. Luke, he said that everything that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. And then the text goes on to say, then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So there is a comprehension of the scriptures, and in particular, a comprehension of the Psalter that flows from the New Testament that we have from the Lord himself. And we must be at home in that use and interpretation of the Psalms if we are to pray them as the Lord and the apostles did and as the fathers of the church and the liturgy of the church teaches us to do. And finally, uh, we will see that the Psalms because they form the backbone, you could say the, the skeletal system of the church's liturgy, must also do the same for 
our prayer, whether we are praying with others, whether we are praying, I, I always try to avoid the expression praying alone because we are never alone. There is no such thing as prayer alone. It may appear that we are alone, but that appearance is only from a very limited earthly perspective. Nothing that we do is alone. Even our sins are in. That is why at the judgment, uh, if we are not healed of our sins and let us pray God that we all will be, they will all, as the Lord said in the gospel, what was secret will be made known to all. There's lots of nice liturgical prayers that ask that, that the Lord in his mercy will not allow our sins to be revealed in that way. And, and that may, may be so that it be fulfilled in all of us. So to illustrate how the Psalms, and I'm going to uh, use a text that every time that uh, I am asked to speak about the Psalms and of the things that I am asked to speak about, the Psalms are nearly at the top over the years. Peter, in the little introduction he read uh, for me, uh, mentioned me as a translator. And it's true that I have translated liturgical and patristic texts. But the thing that I have devoted most of my energy to translating has not yet been completed, and I'm almost finishing my, my 67th year, but I have it here in the, in the rough form that it exists. It's a Psalter. And I'll add, by the way, to that, uh, to the points that I made, if we are going to pray the Psalms in the New Testament, in the spirit of how they are used by the Lord and the apostles, as well as by the church. This will be, in my conviction, a very important point to make. We have to use the text of the Psalms that has been used through the centuries by the church, beginning with the New Testament. It's not a minor issue. Because, as we'll see, there is such a thing, a real tangible thing, as a Christian Psalter, the Christian text of the Psalter, the church text of the Psalter. And unfortunately, most people are hardly familiar with it at all. But there is such a thing. So that will, will not be for this evening, but I'll mention more about it next evening. Now, this centrality of the Psalms, first text that I will turn to, this is going to be a, a kind of uh, combination of, of great voices from 2000 years of Christian experience. And the first quotation comes from St. John Chrysostom, who says, if we keep vigil in church, David comes first, last, and central. Now, St. John Chrysostom refers simply to the Psalms as David. He does this in the same way that the Lord Jesus does. He uses the same expression in the gospel. So if we keep vigil in church, David comes first, last, and central. 
If early in the morning we want songs and hymns, first, last, and central is David again. If we are occupied with the burial solemnities of those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, David is first, last, and central. Oh, amazing wonder. Many who have made little progress in literature know the Psalter by heart. That is what St. John Chrysostom said to congregation of ordinary folks in the early 5th century. Many know the Psalter by heart. Is that so for us now? I fear that uh, in these days of technology, uh, many of us know fewer and fewer things by heart because we have allowed our faculty of memory to go to sleep. We don't use it anymore. We let various gizmos do the remembering for us. This has had a profoundly negative effect on our ability to pray, pray in the spirit of the church. So many know the Psalter by heart. Did you know that uh, in the apostolic canons, this is a group of, of early canons that you still find in volumes of canon law, it's from one of the local councils of the church and provides guidelines for various things. One of the guidelines that one of the group of guidelines that are, that's provided is for the ordination of a man to the priesthood or the episcopate. Did you know that the, in the early church, it was required for a candidate for ordination to the priesthood or the episcopate to know the Psalter by heart? That canon has never formally been abrogated, by the way. <laughs> It's, it's vastly ignored, but it's still there. Why was such a thing necessary to know the Psalter by heart? We might say, if well, uh, if anything should be required to be memorized, it should be the gospel. It'd be, of course, it's a very good thing to memorize the gospel, too, no doubt about it. But here, the requirement is that there be such a direct familiarity with the Psalter so that the ordained clergy who are responsible for leading the people in the liturgical services are able to do so without requiring a written text in front of them. And what is the written text, if they were to use it, that is most used in the church's worship? It is the Psalter. It is not the Gospels. We, we give the greatest honor to the Gospels, yes. We stand when the Gospel is read to us. But the reading of the Gospel in the Mass or the Divine Liturgy takes only a small amount of time. In the Divine Office, in the various forms that it has, it's a rare occasion when the Gospel is read in the Divine Office. But on the other hand, the entire structure of the divine office in all the liturgical traditions of the church rests on the Psalter. Even in the celebration of Mass or, or the divine liturgy, when proper texts are used, for many, many centuries, they were almost exclusively, and in the Byzantine rite, they remain so to this day, almost exclusively verses from the Psalter. And in, for example, the, the older form of the, of the Roman Mass, the proper texts that were sung at the entrance, the introit, 
between the readings, the gradual or tract or alleluia at the offertory or communion were more than 95% chosen verses from the Psalter for the given day. If people from the, oh, not only the first millennium, but most of the second millennium came to our services now and saw that the Psalter had been replaced by popular hymns, they would be very shocked, very shocked indeed. It took Christians a long time to add other hymns to those of the Psalter. For the first three or 400 years, the number of liturgical hymns that were not from the Psalter was a small handful. Some of them you know the Gloria, as it is called in the, in the West, or the great doxology in the East. An, another one very popular in the East is the evening hymn, Joyful Light, or Fossilaron. St. Basil in the fourth century writes that, that even during his time, it's so old, nobody knew where it came from. But that's a small number. Then as time goes on from the great hymnographers, beginning with neither Greek nor Latin, but Syriac sources, St. Ephraim the Syrian, and then imitated by such people as Romanus the Melodist in the Greek church and Ambrose and others in the Latin church. The collection of hymns uh, begins to expand, but even when that happens, they are never allowed to replace the use of the Psalter. There's a funny story about uh, from the life of St. John of Damascus. St. John of Damascus lived in the 8th century. He's considered the last of the great fathers of the church, the, the, the figure that ends what is called the patristic age. It doesn't mean that there aren't great teachers and doctors of the church after that period, but that particular group that are known specifically as the fathers of the church. They end with St. John of Damascus. St. John of Damascus came from a very privileged background from the city of Damascus, which was ruled at that time by the Muslims in the eighth century. But the Muslims in the early centuries of Islam tended to leave the social and civil structures of, of the places they conquered pretty much as, as they were. So, for example, St. John of Damascus's father, John Mansur, was the treasurer of the city of Damascus, and the Muslims left him in that position. So he came from, John came from a, a privileged uh, a family, yet he decided to go to be a monk in one of the most austere of the monasteries of Palestine, the monastery of St. Savas outside Jerusalem in the wilderness. John of Damascus had a great talent for writing and also for composing hymns. In fact, many of his hymns are sung in the Byzantine liturgy to this day, especially on the great feasts. And there's a series of them that are sung at almost every funeral in the Byzantine tradition. But John had a good bit of trouble when he started writing these hymns in the monastery. The story is that one of the brothers in the monastery died. And St. John composed a liturgical hymn to be sung at the funeral service. And his elder had a fit and said, in this place for centuries now, we have sung only the Psalms of David. 
And you with your hymns, you're trying to turn it into a musical. And he got very angry with John, threw him out of his cell, made him sleep in the corridor, and gave him the penance of cleaning out the monastery latrines with his bare hands. <laughs> Elders were not to be crossed in those days. <laughs> but that's not the end of the story, because the account says that that night, either in a dream or a vision, Our Lady herself appeared to the elder looking very displeased and saying, I happen to like his hymns. So St. John went on composing his hymns, but I, I, I tell you that for a little bit of amusement, but also to illustrate how touchy an issue it was to have too much hymn singing that would encroach upon the Psalms. So back to uh, the, the second part of St. John Chrysostom's quote here. Many who have made little progress in literature know the Psalter by heart, nor is it only in cities and churches that David is famous. In the village market, in the desert, and in uninhabitable land, David excites the praise of God. In monasteries, David is first, last, and central. In the convents of virgins, likewise, and where, wherever there are those crucified to the world who live their life already in heaven with God, David is first, last, and central. When all others at night are overcome by sleep, David alone is working, for he gathers the servants of God into angelic bands. He turns earth into heaven and converts men into angels by the chanting of the Psalms. So there you have a very clear and direct example of the foundational centrality of the place of the Psalms. Here's a couple more. I'll, I'll jump ahead to the 20th century to a very different source. Uh, this is uh, the scripture scholar, Anglican scripture scholar, N.T. Wright, who I, I have a very high opinion of, of much of his uh, scriptural commentaries. He's not a Catholic, but in some ways is a kind of 21st century C.S. Lewis-like figure. And he has a little book, I would recommend it highly, The Case for the Psalms by N.T. Wright. And I'll just read a couple quotes from it. This book, he begins by saying, is a personal plea. The Psalms, which make up the great hymn book at the heart of the Bible, have been the daily lifeblood of Christians. And of course, the Jewish people from the earliest times. Yet in many Christian circles today, the Psalms are simply not used. We might make a contrast. St. John Chrysostom said that many know the Psalter by heart. I wonder how many of, of those, not those who don't go to church, but those who do go to church, I wonder how many now could even be able to pray from memory one psalm. It used to be that, that a, a, a very large uh, proportion of the population of English-speaking people in the various countries at least knew the Lord is my shepherd, which remains probably the most 
uh, popular overall of the Psalms. It's interesting because uh, it is not one of the Psalms that is quoted in the New Testament. And it is not one of the Psalms that is given a very heavy liturgical usage. That's not to say that it's not a wonderful text. It is a wonderful text. But even, even Psalm 22, as I will uh, we'll talk about numbering the Psalms next week, but I, I generally follow when I give out the number of the Psalms, and I'm sorry if this confuses some of you, but I think you can not, without, without much difficulty, get used to it. I'm using the traditional numbering of the Psalms from the liturgical Psalter of the church. So the Lord is my shepherd is the 22nd Psalm. Now, and he right goes on to say, in many Christian circles today, the Psalms are simply not used. And in many places where they are still used, whether said or sung, they are often reduced to a few verses to be recited as filler between other parts of the liturgy, of the liturgy or worship services. Sound familiar? In the latter case, people often don't seem to realize what they're singing. In the former case, they don't seem to realize what they're missing. Then later on, he says, the Psalms are among the oldest poems in the world, and they still rank with any poetry in any culture, ancient or modern, from anywhere in the world. They are full of power and passion, horrendous misery and unrestrained jubilation, tender sensitivity and powerful hope. Anyone at all whose heart is open to new dimensions of human experience, anyone who loves good writing, anyone who wants a window into the bright lights and dark corners of the human soul, anyone open to the beautiful expression of a larger vision of reality should react to these poems like someone who hasn't had a good meal for a week or two. Because it's all here. It's all there. And then finally, he says, and this is very important for us, and astonishingly, it doesn't get lost in translation. It doesn't get lost in translation, provided the translation is reasonably good. Most poetry suffers when translated into other languages because it relies for its effect on the sound and rhythm of the original words. But this is not as true for the Psalms. So the Psalms not only survive, but thrive in translation. So we must again ask ourselves, if what we say theoretically is so, that the Psalms are the foundation of our prayers. And by the way, this is the time to say it. I'll probably repeat it a couple of times. I mean in everything that I say about the Psalter, all 150 of the Psalms, all of them, not the ones that we think are most usable for the modern ear, but all of them. From the most joyful, from the highest expressions of praise and adoration and thanksgiving, to the cries from the depths of desolation, to the expressions of love for God, 
thirsting for him, like Psalm 62 says, like a dry and weary land parched without water, thirsting for God, or Psalm 41, as the deer pants for the flowing water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? Those which are so obviously in the way they are expressed, the foundation of prayer. But I would insist also that we include the most bloodthirsty and violent of the Psalms. You can't shy away from them. So uh, I will I will add my little controversy to, to what is said uh, about some of these texts. I do not approve of them being eliminated or uh, either whole psalms or violent verses of psalms being cut out and uh, with the claim that, oh, well, Christians now can't pray these as they were prayed in the Old Testament. It's true that we can't pray them as they were prayed before Christ, but we can pray them in Christ, and we must. We must. The church has always done it. So the full Psalter, with all of its heights and depths and the vast spectrum of every sort of human desire, longing, passion, as the expression of the prayer of the entire church and each one of the members of the church. Let's look at another source, and this is from Pope Benedict XVI, one of his reflections on the Psalms. He says this, the 150 Psalms express all human experience. All the truth of the believer comes together in those prayers, which first the people of Israel and later the church adopted as a special way to mediate their relationship with the one God. And as an adequate response to his having revealed himself in history. So the Psalms are a response of the people who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of the prophets, the God who ultimately reveals himself through the incarnation of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Psalms constitute the expression of the people who respond with faith to God's revelation. They are the tangible, verbal expression of that response. Pope Benedict goes on to say, despite the many forms of expression they contain, the Psalms can be divided into two broad categories, supplication associated with lamentation and praise. So supplication associated with lamentation and praise. And there's plenty of both. I recall uh, a time before I came to Wyoming Catholic College. I've been here for two years now as the Byzantine Catholic chaplain here and also as a member of the faculty. Uh, but before that, I was for 20 years in a little mission parish in a little town in Northern California, two hours north of San Francisco, Ukiah, California. 
It was inland enough so that the, the summers were scorching hot. Thank God we got some breezes at night because further inland, you don't even get that. But it's in fire country. And often during the summer, especially on Saturday nights, you know, uh, the priest in a, in a small Eastern Catholic mission parish during vacation time, as the summer is for many folks, wonders if he's going to have any congregation at all uh, on a given weekend because if two or three or four of the big families are on vacation at the same time in a little place, that wipes, wipes the place out practically. So on those hot Saturday nights, when I lived a quarter mile away from the racetrack, I could hear the racetrack roaring till nearly midnight. One of the things I did is I was going to make a point in my homily the next day about those, those psalms that speak of the enemies, asking God to avenge me upon my enemies, those psalms that people find difficult. And I actually counted through the 150 psalms to uh, see how many of them had those pleased uh, to God for vindication. From in, in a spirit of lamentation. And it was over three quarters of them. So it's a reflection of the reality of life. So for, again, from the heights to the depths and containing again, every, uh, to use an, uh, the prism as, a, as an example, as an illustration, every color of the prism. So, Pope Emeritus Bendit goes on to say, these two dimensions, supplication in lamentation and praise, are related, almost indivisible, because supplication is animated by the certainty that God will respond. And this opens the way to praise and thanksgiving, while praise and thanksgiving arise from the experience of salvation received, which presupposes the need for help expressed in the supplication. So one is joined to the other. Thus, in the prayer of the Psalms, supplication and praise intertwine and fuse together in a single song, which celebrates the eternal grace of the Lord as he bows down to our frailty. The Psalms teach us to pray. The Psalms teach us to pray. The name of these two talks, uh, the, the request of the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, to that request, of course, the uh, Lord taught the apostles the Our Father. But even the Our Father rests upon that foundation that holds up the entire structure. And we see it in so many of the events of our Lord's own life, the words of the Psalms coming forth from his mouth, especially, especially on the cross. And, and I'll say more about that uh, as, as we go on. Another source that I think it's important in any uh, introductory lecture on the centrality of the Psalter to speak about is the, uh, a letter written by St. Athanasius, the great, in the fourth century, 
to uh, someone by the name of Marcellinus, who wrote to St. Athanasius asking for advice on how to interpret the Psalms. And so, by the way, if you have the, the uh, edition of the translation of uh, St. Athanasius's treatise on the Incarnation, which according to the, the life that was written of St. Athanasius, just a, a generation after he died, the author claimed that St. Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation when he was 19 years old. But in, in the edition with, that has the introduction by C.S. Lewis, it's a very good edition, there is an appendix that contains the letter of St. Athanasius to Marcellinus on the interpretation of the Psalms. And it's a long letter, and I'm not going to attempt to, it's a good 20-some pages. But I'm only going to focus on a few passages of it. St. Athanasius writes, My dear Marcellinus, your steadfastness in Christ fills me with admiration. Not only are you bearing well your present trial with its attendant suffering, you are even living under rule. So he's living under uh, a, a discipline. And so the bearer of your letter tells me, using the leisure necessitated by your recent illness to study the whole body of the Holy Scriptures and especially the Psalms. Splendid. I myself am devoted to the Psalms, as indeed to the whole Bible. And I once talked with a certain studious old man who had bestowed much labor on the Psalter and discoursed to me about it with great persuasiveness and charm, expressing himself clearly too and holding a copy of it in his hand the while he spoke. So I'm going to write down for you the things he said. So Athanasius is quoting for Marcellinus this anonymous source that he had at hand. And here we have said something that is so clear and necessary for us to hear now. Son, all the books of scripture, both Old Testament and New, are inspired by God and useful for instruction, as the apostle says. But to those who really study it, the Psalter yields special treasure. So from the very first sentence of this instruction, the salt, it is claimed that the Psalter has a special treasure. And not only in the Old Testament, but also including the New. Each book of the Bible has, of course, its own particular message. And then, uh, then the author of this letter goes through almost all the books of the Old Testament. And I won't read it because it's a lengthy passage, just uh, a, a few phrases from it. The Pentateuch, the books of, books of Moses, the first five books, tells of the beginning of the world, the patriarchs, the exodus, giving of the law, and so forth. Then he goes on to what we would call the historical books. Joshua, Judges, and Samuel describe the division of the inheritance of the land of Israel and the ancestry of David. Kings and Chronicles record the doings of the kings. Each, uh, then he says, the prophets foretell the coming of the Savior. They also put us in mind of the commandments, reprove transgressors, and have a special word for the Gentiles. So in the prophets, one finds the passages 
that focus upon God's promise to Abraham to save everyone. Uh, remember that the promise that is given by God to Abraham is that in your seed, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. So the prophets expand upon that. But then he goes on to speak of the salt. Each of these books you see is like a garden which grows one special kind of fruit. By contrast, the Psalter is a garden which, besides its special fruit, grows also some of those of all the rest. In other words, this author, anonymous author, is saying that whatever the particular focus of any one of the books of Scripture, all of them are distilled in a concentrated form into the Psalter. So the Psalter is a microcosm of the entire Bible. The Psalter is a microcosm of the entire Bible. And our author gives some examples of this. The creation, for instance, of which we read in Genesis, spoken of in Psalm 18, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Again, in Psalm 23, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Exodus, which we find in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is fitly sung in Psalms 87, 105, 106, 114. And on and on he goes. How everything that is described in the books of Moses, the historical books, the prophetic books, the books of wisdom, is distilled into the Psalms. So that is why in the liturgy of the church, the Psalter has always provided the first place. That is why even when we read descriptions of the early liturgy, we hear that when the liturgical services were not going on, people when they wish to pray, turn to the words of the Psalms. Many of you would be familiar with the Liturgy of the Hours in its Western form. The Liturgy of the Hours in its Western form, each one of the hours, that at least the ones during the day, the, the first service of the day has a special beginning, but all the other hours of the day, whether it's I'll use the traditional names, lauds or the morning, the morning prayer, uh, the prayers of the various hours of the day, third, sixth, ninth hours, terse, sex, known, vespers, compline, all begin in the West in the same way. Oh, God, come to my assistance. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me, right? This is from Psalm 69. It's one of the first examples of using a particular verse in this case of scripture as a form of repetitive prayer. St. John Cashin, one of the early monastic fathers, uh, fifth century, tells us that when the early monks would go off again, apparently by themselves to pray, one of the favorite verses that they would use, even this is an earlier time than we hear of the Jesus prayer, which became popular later on. 
but an, an early form, if you will, of what became the Jesus prayer. Oh God, come to my assistance, O Lord, make haste to help me. So that when they return to the liturgical services of the church, they would pray that for one last time, then go on to the service. So there was a continuity between the time engaged in liturgical prayer and the time outside of liturgical prayer. When the fathers of the church speak of meditation, meditation, and that poor word has gone through such a, uh, I won't even say metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is, by the way, the Greek word for transfiguration. By the way, it's also uh, the word that in science is used for the transformation, for example, of a, a caterpillar into a butterfly. I used to be fascinated with it when I was uh, a boy in school, when I first learned of in science about the metamorphosis. I still can't resist, uh, uh, you know, on, on the nature shows when they show the this transformation, which does not involve the destruction of the caterpillar, but the transformation of the caterpillar. Likewise, the Lord Jesus, in the transfiguration of his most pure flesh, does not destroy the flesh that he has taken, but transforms it through his death and resurrection. And that's what is shown even before his death and resurrection takes place in the transfiguration. So that's a little bit of a, an aside now, the word meditation has undergone not a metamorphosis, but a pseudomorphosis, a false change in which people, people think of it now as some sort of exercise of concentration in which you empty out your mind. Better be careful emptying out our minds because they might be filled with all sorts of stuff as a result. The Lord has rather stern words to say about the house that is emptied and not filled with something better. Remember in the gospel? So meditation meant something far different in the early church. It meant to take a text, usually always of scripture, and most popularly of the Psalter, and then in, in second popularity would be the gospels, and literally to chew on it. That's what the initial sense of the word, to chew on it, to say it over and over again as a repetitive prayer. So that not only was it memorized by the, by the faculty of memory, but that it was digested in the heart and became part of one. That's how people were able to memorize the Psalter by heart, by practicing that basic form of meditative prayer on, on the texts of scripture. And that is how the early ascetics prayed, the fathers and mothers of the desert. There's one text I didn't bring with me this evening. Uh, we heard a, a while, just a while back this evening, of <coughs> St. John Chrysostom saying that when a people are keeping vigil, David is first, last, and central. How did they keep vigil? Well, one of the early desert fathers tells us. He says, at the setting of the sun, I lift up my hands to the east. The sun is setting in the west, so I don't lift up my hands to the setting sun. But literally, I would turn my back to the setting sun. I lift up my hands to the east. 
and I begin, blessed is the man who does not walk in the, in the counsel of the ungodly. It's the first verse of Psalm 1, the beginning of the Psalter. And I continue my vigil until I have said, let everything that breathes or let every breath praise the Lord. That's the end of Psalm 150. So keeping a vigil for the early ascetics meant praying a Psalter in a meditative way. There's a relationship between that meditative prayer and the prayer of the liturgy. Every liturgical tradition in the church, we'll say more about this next week, every liturgical tradition in the church has a system of praying the Psalms. It's a twofold system, and every liturgical rite that comes from the apostolic tradition has this system in one form or the, or the other. The first expression is selecting certain psalms to be prayed on certain occasions, such as psalms that are appropriate as morning prayers or evening prayers or prayers during the night or prayers for various days of the week or prayers for the celebration of certain feasts. From that comes the entry into the liturgy of what we call the propers of the day. Special texts, so a particular use of the Psalms. That's one expression of the praying of the Psalter in the liturgy of the church. The second is what I was speaking of before uh, I, I brought this up, and that is the regular or sequential praying of the Psalms. And that means that every liturgical tradition has a practice of praying through the Psalter in a given interval. The practice of the early ascetics, by the way, always useful to remember that the early ascetic movement, the early monastic movement in the church was not a clerically inspired movement. It was fueled by lay people, lay people. And the basic expression of prayer for these early ascetics was to pray a psalter in one night, in one night. From that basic experience, there enters into the liturgy of the church, praying the psalter in a given interval. The most popular interval in the history of the church's liturgy has been a psalter a week. That's what St. Benedict, in his rule, says that, uh, and, he, and he, of course, is presenting it as something that is, that is a, light, a, a light obligation, not, not difficult, he says. And anyone, any, any less than that, he says, is really quite disgraceful. <laughs> so for that reason, most of the sequential systems of praying the Psalter in the divine office through the 2,000 years of Christian prayer have presupposed that there, that there be a Psalter a week. Sometimes that has been uh, uh, moderated a little further. For example, in the Byzantine tradition uh, in Constantinople for quite a long time, it was a Psalter every two weeks. Then in, in modern times, this, this begins with 
the uh, the Protestant Reformation in England, and and the work of of uh, Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, in in providing the the Protestant Church in England with the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, he provided a monthly psalter, monthly psalter. And he didn't make up that idea by uh, by himself. He got the idea from a, a Spanish leader of church reform. Deximenes was his name, his last name. I forget his first name. And he also suggested, because people, he said, had gotten so lax in their prayer, that if perhaps we suggest a, a reduced expression of a monthly psalter, not only the clergy and, and the monks and religious, but also the, the faithful will be able to pray it with, with, with greater piety. Well, that system was adopted by, by the, the church in England that, of course, that sadly, of course, severed itself from, from Catholic communion. But the idea of it stayed around. And of course, in the version of the Liturgy of the Hours, as it is called now, in the Latin rite of the church, beginning in uh, 1970, that model was adopted, the monthly Psalter. So whatever, I, I'm not going to get into debates on, on uh, which, which model is best. I simply wish to illustrate that there has always been this model of the sequential Psalter. When I say always, I mean always among Christians, because one of the surprising things is that in Jewish use, and of course the Psalms are Hebrew poems, Hebrew songs, by the way, the word psalm means song. So they are, they are Hebrew songs, yet there is no evidence that in as familiar as familiar as excuse me as familiar as the Jews were with the Psalms, there is no evidence that they ever used them in this sequential form of prayer. That seems to be a uniquely Christian practice. The Jewish practice was more the first practice that I mentioned to select certain ones appropriate for certain times of the day, certain days of the week, certain feasts. But the sequential, the praying of the sequential Psalter is a uniquely Christian practice that seems to have been always there as long as Christian prayer is mentioned in the sources that refer to it. So that would lead us, I think, to be convinced that if a member of the church wishes to foundationalize him or herself in the way the church has prayed from the beginning, that means that the use of the Psalter, whether in the Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, which of course, because it is the corporate expression of the church's prayer, is the highest form of this prayer. It's the Liturgy of the Sanctification of Time, as my teacher, Father Alexander Schmemann, would say. 
So, and that, that answers an important question. Why this psalmodizing at regular times through the day and night? What's the purpose of it? And we can see, unfortunately, in the times that, that we live in, and not just recent times, this has gone on for quite some time now, the foundational dimension of the church's liturgical tradition is still very little practiced in the liturgical life of parishes. Now, in to a certain extent, it used to be you used to be able to say that that the East was more faithful to it than the West. But even now in the East, you see the erosion. Uh, did you know, for example, that in medieval England, Catholic England before the Reformation, of course, there was the obligation for Christians to be in church for the Lord's Day and the, and the great feast days. That obligation was understood then not simply to mean going to Mass or to the liturgy. It meant specifically going to the morning and evening office, matins and vespers, as well as the mass. When we just celebrated uh, in, in, well, on, on the Western calendar, but there are those of us in the East who honor him greatly too, the great Curé d'Ars, St. John Vianney. Now, he came to this little, little neglected parish uh, after, in the century, just after the French Revolution and after the Napoleonic Wars, and the practice, the practice of the faith was already heavily eroded in most places in France. And he came there wanting to restore the fervor of the people's faith. And he did this primarily by getting them to come to church again. And they did. It took him great perseverance and great effort. And they were a rather stubborn, stiff-necked lot. But nevertheless, God's grace did work in them. Some amazing things were said, by the way, when the, at the cause of canonization for the Curie de Arts, because some of his old parishioners were still alive. You know, and the, so the examiners asked the parishioners questions about John Marie Vianney. And uh, they said things like, they asked questions like, well, did, did Monsieur de Le Cure uh, preach long sermons? And one old man said, yes, long ones, and always about hell. <laughs> Some people say there is no hell. Ah, well, the old man says he believed in it. <laughs> but not only through preaching, but through bringing the people back to common prayer. Another one quoted his words that praying at home was good and necessary, but praying at home, he said, is like some pieces of straw that when you light them, they give a little flame and you need to bring all those straws together in the church and then you have a great fire. So in ours, therefore, after about 25 years of effort, the people there came to church three times on Sunday. It's recorded explicitly. They came, they came to the mass in the morning, and there was only one, 
that wasn't every hour on the hour at convenient times, morning, noon, and night. <laughs> there was only one, and it took three hours. Because there was a procession every Sunday, and there was a long sermon and so forth. So uh, time was, was used for it. Then they would then they would go have their Sunday dinner, which in the culture of that time, actually in the culture when I grew up into Christian culture, what was left of it, you had your Sunday dinner after church. And then instead of instead of taking a Sunday afternoon nap in the afternoon, they came back to church where he had a catechism lesson, which they became very popular, as well as the singing of Vespers. And then they had the time into the evening and they would relax then and even play games. He didn't object to playing of good, of good games. And then at night, once the, once the darkness, coming, darkness was coming down, they came back to church again. And they had a night prayers in, in French, in the vernacular, followed by Compline. So that was Sunday in ours. And in doing that, the Cure de Ars was not you know, inventing some something that had not been heard of before. He was simply bringing back something of what was there in Christian life for most of its history. And we have to ask ourselves, does the life in our church bear any resemblance to this? I'm not saying that, that we can just, all right, let's all copy ours beginning this Sunday. But does it bear any connection to the life of prayer that was and is foundationalized by the praying of the Psalms? Hilaire Belloc, maybe uh, some of you have read one of his wonderful books, The, the Path to Rome, great book of Belloc. And he describes, he, he, he made a vow to walk to Rome from a certain place in France near his birthplace all the way to Rome. And he did it. I mean, he, <laughs> he made some adaptations along the way, which are very amusing. But he describes uh, being in a village in Switzerland, Sunday afternoon, and the bell rang, church bell rang. And he said the entire population of the village was seen walking to church. And so he went to... He was, he was devout, Belloc, and he went, he went into the church, and they proceeded to have Sunday Vespers, which, in, in, of course, in, this time, in that time, would have been all in Latin. And he said the entire congregation sang all of the Psalms of Vespers by heart. So, uh, again, this is not to say that that went on everywhere, but it was typical enough. And so much of that has been lost and replaced with something that is much more superficial. We have, to, we have to be careful, dear brothers and sisters, uh, that we don't have a practice of the faith that becomes imbalanced, unbalanced. And so even things that are good can be used in an unbalanced way, for example. The great... Benedictine abbot and liturgical scholar Odo Cassel in the mid-20th century said that the liturgy is like a plant with beautiful flowers. And he said the most beautiful of the flowers is that of the Holy Eucharist. But, he says, the Holy Eucharist requires a stem and, leaf, and leaves and roots. 
It needs something to hold it up. And what he said holds it up is this ongoing sanctification of time through the church's prayer, the divine office or liturgy of, of the hours or the daily cycle, whatever name you use for it, which consists primarily of the Psalter. So that is, is something for our, I think, very serious reflection and consideration. Is the foundation of prayer in place for us? Or have we allowed a kind of unbalanced, unbalanced in relationship to the life of the church, not only the church of the new Israel, but even going, going further back to the first Israel? Do we live in that same world of prayer? Are we at home in it? Do we experience prayer that expresses itself most particularly through psalmodizing as the way, uh, as the means of sanctification of time? I think some of you maybe have heard some of my other talks, and I'll quote, I don't have his book with me tonight, but the, the, uh, very edifying writings of the rabbi, Orthodox Jewish rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who writes in his book on the Sabbath that modern people have come to see time as simply some kind of fuel to be burned. In other words, I've got so much time fuel today, and I'm going to burn it up in my desire to, to exercise my control over my little bit of space so that the what I call my life, which is mostly a delusion and a fiction, <laughs> what I call my life can be maintained by my control over my uh, imaginary solar system of which I am the sun and master. And I use time as a fuel for that. That is a rather caricatured expression of the modern spirit. The Christian spirit is that time is meant to be sanctified and is a door into eternity. And the means by which that process of sanctification has been realized as the voices that we heard tonight, whether it's St. John Chrysostom, St. Athanasius, Pope Benedict, N.T. Wright, the means by which that has been actualized has been through the praying of the Psalms of David. They are the foundation. They are first, last, and central. So I think I'll conclude there. And we'll have more next week. And uh, we'll have a break now as the is our usual practice, and then there'll be time for questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father David. This was an excellent introduction, uh, a little different from what I expected, but in the best possible way. I was thinking, oh, we're just going to start going through the Psalms, and instead you hit it from a completely different approach, and I, I, I'm i blown away. Uh, I've done I, that before. I've gone through them, but it takes a year or more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. With 150 to get under our belt, maybe we'll save that for a, a future course or something like that. But uh, it, uh, I, I don't want to take anything from what you're going to cover next week, but but you make me think of one thing that uh, one great resource that got me into the Psalms, uh, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, they put together a number of their meditations, uh, or I guess St. Paul's Press or something, collected all of their catechesis on Yes, the yes. In fact, what I read to you from Pope Benedict was from when he took over from, from St. John Paul II. 
Okay, that's wonderful. Yeah. 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 yeah, that that that's what really started to blow it open uh, for, or introduce me to the Psalms, because prior to that, I guess most people's experience is that it's sort of an ornament to the liturgy, that we have the readings and that's what Father preaches about. And then the Psalm just sort of happens in there and you happen to notice a snippet here and a snippet there. But anyway, this is wonderful. This first question, Father, comes from Sister Michelle. A couple others have also asked something similar um, she points out chapter and verse. That's a later development, of course, to the scriptures. Um, but when did the Psalms get their numbering? Um, was it always referred to as one, two, three, et cetera, or did that develop? The, the precise century when this occurred, I do not know. I do know that it antedates, and we'll, we'll speak about this next week, it antedates the two basic textual traditions that we have for the Psalter. This is a, this is, I want to present this question in a way that does not become too technical, but it's an important question. I mentioned that we'd be speaking of the Christian Psalter. We have the traditional Psalter of the church, which comes from what is called the Septuagint. Okay, the Septuagint Psalter remains the Psalter of the church, even now. Even though there are many in the church that, this is the irony, there are many in the church that don't have much familiarity with the Septuagint Psalter, because the Bibles that they use don't have a Psalter based on the Septuagint. They have a Psalter that is based on what is called the, the Masoretic text or the text of the rabbis and scribes. Word Masoret means scribe. So the Septuagint is, of course, the Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament made in Alexandria around the 2nd century BC. And the numbering of the Psalter is there, is there. So it means that before these two textual traditions, that of the Septuagint and that of the scribes become distinct and go their own ways. The numbering system is there. And one of the differences, one of the between the two traditions is the is the two different systems of numbering. You know, there's and I, I think most of you are familiar, you maybe you have the uh the uh revised standard version Catholic edition, Ignatius Press, you get to the Psalms and you see that many of the Psalms have one number and then after that number in the parentheses is another number. The, that's giving you both traditions of numbering that go back at least to the second century BC and beforehand, who knows how far. Okay. So it is, it is an old, the numbering system is old. How precisely old my studies have not, uh, given us, uh, and, and of course, there are those who are far more expert in this than I would be, but to my knowledge, there isn't a date that you can ascribe, but it, it goes back uh, several centuries before Christ. Of course, okay. David, David lives a millennium before Christ. And the, the church does traditionally accept the Davidic authorship, not of all 150 Psalms, but of at least a great many of them. And, and our Lord Jesus, as well as the apostles in the New Testament, refer to the Psalms as David says, such and such. So uh, we take that seriously. 
that actually leads me to uh, this next question that also we received from a number of people. Uh, but, but Charlotte asks, who wrote the Psalms that are not attributed to David? Do we have any idea? We have some idea because uh, in a number of the texts of, of the Psalms, let's, uh, oh, oh, well, let's see. Um, there are references made to the authorship. There's a little introduction given to many of the Psalms. So for example, a good many of them will say a Psalm of da- a Psalm of David, especially in the earlier portion of the Psalter. But then when you get further on, you find some of them uh, ascribed to other authors. Here I've turned to Psalm 88, which by the way is the fav- favorite Psalm for the Feast of the Transfiguration. Uh, a Psalm concerning understanding for Ethan, the Israel, uh, the Israelite. There are other psalms that, here's 187, just turning one back, an ode of a psalm for the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah are one of the three divisions of the Levites, and they were responsible for providing the temple singers. And then there's even more elaboration after it says it's a, from the sons of Korah, uh, for the Mahalath. To respond, so that's that is a, a some sort of choral uh, instruction there. A, a, a number more of them are are ascribed to Asaph, A S A P H, one of one of the uh, choir masters of, of the temple choir. So we do have some some idea, and you can get get uh, more of, of an idea of this by looking at the various introductory texts that that not all of the psalms have them, but a great many of them do. You mentioned Asaph just there as as a choir master in the temple. Do we have indications of how these psalms were used in the liturgies? You mentioned some. that they didn't use the full psalter the way the Christians do, but do we know how they did? Some we have, for example, descriptions of psalms that were used on certain days, a psalm for the Sabbath, it will say, or a psalm for this or that day of the week. Then this now this is not found in those little uh, uh, introductory inscriptions, but there are the psalms that are used for the great feast days. Uh, two groups of them that are called the psalms of the Hallel for example. Hallel is where we get the word alleluia from. Uh, hallelujah in, in Hebrew, meaning praise the Lord. And there, there are, there's the Psalms of the little Hallel that go from, again, I'm giving the, the traditional numbering of the church, from 112 to 117. Then there's the great Hallel, which is 134 and 135. Now, Psalm 135 is one that you are probably all have a reasonable familiarity with because it's the one whose every verse ends with the words, for his mercy endures forever. Um, or, or they sometimes translate mercy in an, it, with other words, his love or, or his steadfast love, so forth. But maybe talk about that next week, the, the, the uses of the words that get translated into the English word mercy. It's actually important for an understanding of the Psalter. But uh, those Psalms were used for the great feasts, the Hallel Psalms, and especially at Passover, but at, at the other feasts as well. And they have 
they have entered from their festal use in, into the use, especially, uh, especially but not exclusively, of the Eastern churches, because those, those mercy enduring forever psalms of praise you find in the offices for feasts in the, in the Western liturgy of the hours too. But in the Byzantine tradition, for example, uh, the two psalms of the great Hallel are called the polyaleos the much mercy psalms, the many mercy psalms, because each one has that phrase, for his mercy endures forever. And it just so happens that I'll, I'll finish this little comment, comment next week, just so happens that the Greek word for mercy, eleos, which is where we get the eleison, in Kyrie eleison, but the word eleos also means oil. So the same word that gets translated into mercy also means oil. So, uh, and of course, what's one of the features, both in the worship of, of Israel and of the church, for great feasts, many, many lamps, many, many candles. We don't have the, the same sensitivity to that in our, in our age of electric lighting. But how many candles you light for a given service was a great preoccupation in the past. Uh, a few for something small, more for something bigger, everything you got for, for a great feast. I grew up, uh, I grew up with uh, people that came to the United States from southern Italy and Sicily. And uh, when, when they would want to have uh, memorials for their departed, uh, they, you know, they would want the works they would want, even if it was on a weekday early in the morning, they would want music and a little choir. And especially they wanted, they would say, tutti la luce, every light, every candle. <laughs> so that's, that has its roots in, in Israel, you know. So I've gone off a little bit, but that's some examples. So. That's fascinating, though. Uh, Father, this next question comes from Brian. He asks, from your work with students and parishioners, what seems to be the main obstacle uh, for one who wants to embrace the Psalms as one of a, uh, their frequent forms of prayer? The main obstacle? That's a good question. Uh, hmm. Well, there's an obstacle that that comes to mind immediately. I don't know if it's a main obstacle, but I, I can just speak from my own experience. Um, not enough effort goes into uh, singing and chanting the Psalms properly as we have them in the liturgical services as we have them. And so priests and singers that are responsible for the worship of the church need to put that effort in. Whenever, now this, now, you know, I'm, I, I'm in the Byzantine tradition, we sing all our services, but uh, sometimes we sing them well, sometimes well, as well as we can. There's, there's one of the prayers of the Byzantine liturgy that says, accept this, this hymn of praise, O Lord, that we offer you as best we can. And sometimes, sometimes it's glorious and sometimes it's more humble. But anyway, uh, I have to say that key to this is remembering that the Psalms are songs. And I must say that when I hear somebody stand up in church and read in a spoken voice, sing to the Lord a new song, I want to throw something at him or her. Or stand up and shout, it's a song, sing it. So this, uh, because this is reductionism, you see, 
And so you, one has to make the Psalms in their special use. For example, in the Byzantine tradition, there's, and there's, uh, there are similar things in, in the Western tradition too. When, when a psalm is chosen on a feast day for the, pro, for the propers of the liturgy and during the office, it should be a big deal, a big deal. It should speak. And if you make the effort there, and then if you teach, there is going to be a desire. So, for example, I've, I've been at Wyoming Catholic College for two years, and we have daily Byzantine services. We have we have not we have not only frequent divine liturgy. We have vespers every evening and matins very frequently in the morning. And and when I first came, nobody knew how to do any of this because there was only a few actual Eastern Catholics here. But now a lot of people come to the services, even if they don't. Even while they're here, they want to take advantage of this unique opportunity. And and we have people that come over and join in the chanting of the psalms. Sometimes a large number of them. We make booklets that give the psalms for the for the hours, both sequential use and special use. And the people now engage in them enthusiastically, and now and now they say they have begun to pray this altar when in, in their prayers at home too. That's how. Use what's there, and make something of it, and then it will permeate. I see a hand, James. Is that Father Fessio once went on a quest uh, to see if he could find out um, any a testimony on what the Psalms sounded like as sung in the Old Testament liturgy, oh. and he went through a number of people and. It seems to me the most definite answer he got came from a secular academic who gave him a very confident pronouncement that he as a priest ought to know because most certainly they sounded like Gregorian chant. Could you comment on that? I can comment on it. There is, no, I, I you know, I, I would say that I know some about this. Um, there is some truth in that, uh, that the chants of Israel did inspire the chants of the church in their Syriac and Greek and Latin forms. Now, from that initial inspiration by, by the chants of the synagogue, and maybe a little of the temple too, but most came from the synagogues. Remember, there's a there's kind of, well, actually three centers of Jewish worship. One's the temple. But to go to the temple a lot, you have to live in or near Jerusalem. Otherwise, you make, you know, rare pilgrimages there. There's the synagogue where you go all the time. So what goes on in the synagogue is very formative. And there's also the home because a good deal of Jewish liturgy takes place in the home, too. So uh, the influence of the Jewish Christians upon the increasingly Gentile background church included musical influence in the early chants some of the some of the ones that have the 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 closest link uh, to the jewish chants would probably be not the latin or greek ones but the syriac or aramaic ones that you still find used in in the churches for example of of the syrian maronite chaldean uh tradition um and then, but then also in the others, but there's a, a more direct link simply because of the of the language. So yes, there is there is definitely this this influential link of Hebrew chant upon the church chants. Thank you. 
and, but I mean the traditional chants, as uh, James mentioned, Gregorian chant and the other church chants. I, I don't mean I don't mean that there's a link between contemporary modes of singing, however good or bad some of them may be for, for liturgical use. <laughs> you know, Saint Paul does say that there's. There, he puts psalmody first, but there's there's other ways to sing. He says, praise God with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He means they, these are all different things. Psalmody has the first place, and, and it's really sad if other things replace it. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.